Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, it's the parable of the workers in the vineyard, this Sunday's gospel reading. It's a case of one worker working a full day and getting a full day's wage, and another worker who gets hired at the last minute and works just one hour, but also gets paid for a full day. This prompts the natural reaction of, but that's not fair. Here, Bishop break down this parable, the difference between justice and generosity, and what Jesus meant when he said, the last will be first and the first will be last. Then it's on to two friends from the third century who are now saints, St. Cornelius and St. Cyprian. The show wraps up with Bishop answering questions from listeners on intrinsic evils, giving up meat on Fridays, and priests wearing jeans. If you have a question for a future episode, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to another episode of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And Bishop, today we're going to talk about workers in the vineyard. Do you remember how much your first job paid? It was McDonald's. Uh, I, I don't remember <laughs> right, it being I very much. <laughs> I don't remember. And that would have been... In the early seventies, I forget which year of school it was. I was still in high school. I might it might have been between my sophomore and junior year, although or between my junior and senior year. I was pretty young. I was seventeen when I graduated from high school. So yeah, I forget. But it wasn't I know it was minimum wage. Whatever uh, minimum wage right, was sure, back sure. then. <laughs> Plus free food? Yes, okay. I used to, I, we did get some free food. Yep, I remember it. But I didn't like the job at all. Uh-huh. Did I tell you that before? Yeah, it motivated you to you know to study harder, maybe. Yeah, well, you know, I was I liked it for like a week, uh-huh. and then I was bored. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've had other jobs that I'd get bored pretty quickly. Yeah, I'm never bored as a bishop. No. Uh-uh. Do some of the jobs get boring? Uh, emails or yeah, paperwork I would say writing, or... a- answering letters is, is, yeah, I don't enjoy. That's <laughs> boring most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, 
This coming Sunday's gospel reading is Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on this reading for us. Yeah, because, you know, it's a great parable for us to talk about because so many people kind of can relate to the, the workers who were there all day uh-huh. and got paid the same amount of them as the ones who only worked for an hour. So it's kind of a natural human reaction, perhaps, to say, that's not fair. Right. So <laughs> yes. um, we could kind of- I kinda, can say it all the time. Right. So I like talking about this, but I think it might be good to uh, read it first so that our listeners are re- recall. I think they'll recall it. We've heard it before, but do you want to read it, Kyle? Sure. Jesus told his disciples this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out at dawn to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with them for the usual daily wage, he sent them to his vineyard. Going out about nine o'clock, the landowner saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you too go into my vineyard, and I will give you what is just. So they went off, and he went out again around noon and around three o'clock and did likewise. Going out about five o'clock, the landowner found others standing around and said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They answered, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you too go into my vineyard. When it was evening, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, summon the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and ending with the first. When those who had started about five o'clock came, each received the usual daily wage. So when the first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also got the usual wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last ones worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who bore the day's burden and the heat. He said to one of them in reply, My friend, I am not cheating you. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what is yours and go. What if I wish to give the last one the same as you? Or... Am I not free to do as I wish with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? Thus, the last will be first, and the first will be last. There's a a really, thanks, Kyle. There's a really important theological message in this, but let's just go through it a little bit. Um, The idea of this landowner, you know, we, if you recall, some of the prophets use that image of, of a vineyard and God as, as the owner of the vineyard mm-hmm. or the landowner, kind of a traditional motif from the Old Testament. So we have that motif now being used by Jesus in this parable, and he goes out to hire these teams of workers, these laborers for his vineyard, and you know, beginning at sunrise all the way to sunset, he's going out getting these workers, and he contracts with the workers for the usual daily wage. Do you ever wonder what a usual daily wage was back then at that uh, in uh, Palestine? Uh, Fourteen shekels. I have no idea. <laughs> a denarius. A denarius. Okay. Yeah, a denarius is a Roman coin, silver coin, and that was the going rate. You'd get a denarius. Okay, you had a full day of labor, manual labor, you know, that's what you'd be given. And you'd be given it that very day. It's mm-hmm. not like you got a paycheck after two weeks. You were given it that very day because that was what the law of Moses required, the Torah, that hired help 
not regular employees, but hired help be given their earnings by by sundown. Uh-huh. So very interesting. Um, read about that in the book of Deuteronomy. So anyhow, it's okay. always good to know the the Old Testament background. But then the owner had to go out several times throughout the day, about every three hours. Gospel tells us nine o'clock, noon, three o'clock. He goes back to the marketplace to get more field hands, and each time he sees these guys standing around idle. You know, they weren't working. They were hoping to be employed. That's why they stayed in the marketplace. And they didn't really negotiate, it doesn't sound like. They just agreed to work for what's just, and they headed off to the vineyard. And it, But the surprise was that all the way up till 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he goes out to find new hires. That's, that's an hour before quitting time right and uh but still there's some of these guys still hanging out in the marketplace standing around they needed a job and he approached them asked them why they were still there you know there was only an hour left before sundown and they basically answered him because no one's hired us Mm -hmm. that's why they stayed there they they still wanted to work they were still available to work so they did for an hour (laughs) and then as you as we heard evening came and Work was over, and the foreman in charge was told to round up the employees and pay them. And he he was told to pay them beginning with the last, those who just worked for an hour, and ending with the first. So probably that first group, the ones who only worked for an hour, that 5 o'clock group, were expecting to receive what? Probably a twelfth of the daily wage, you know, because they had only worked for an hour. Imagine how surprised that when they got the whole day's wage, they got a denarius. Right. So they must have been thrilled. But then the opposite with the ones who had worked all day, you know, they were probably thinking, okay, we'll get, you know, twelve times. Right. We'll get twelve denarii. No, they still got just one denarius. They got the the, the standard rate. So they grumbled about it. And they thought this is unfair, you know. We worked so many more hours. We've been out in the hot sun all this time. And if these guys get, for one hour of work, get this denarius, shouldn't we earn 12 denarii? So the owner, landowner, takes one of them aside, as we just heard, to explain. And this is really interesting. He said, my friend, I'm not cheating you. Did you not agree with me? for the usual daily wage. Uh-huh. That was the contract. That was the deal. Right. It was fair. He wasn't cheating him, you know. He gave him a day's pay for a day's work. So justice was being done. Mm-hmm. The real issue wasn't one of justice. What was the real issue? The real issue is generosity. Right. Okay? So justice required that... Those guys who had worked the full day get the denarius. And justice would have required those who only worked for an hour to get a twelfth of it. But the owner decided to be, he didn't violate justice. He decided to be generous with those who only worked an hour. Now, they didn't deserve it, but he was generous. That's why he asked, the, 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 the vineyard owner then asked the question of the ones complaining, are you envious because I am generous? Right. If you look at that in Greek, the Greek actually says, is your eye evil because I am good? Mm. Is your eye evil? The evil eye. That was something in the Semitic 
context that that referred to someone who was envious, who right. was lacking in, in generosity. So this is an important lesson that points to how generous God is, basically. That the late hires who receive from the landowner the same compensation as the early arrivals, it wasn't something they deserved. It wasn't something they merited. It was a gift. The Lord was free to bestow. Now, the problem of those who were hired early is they didn't recognize this as divine generosity. They didn't recognize this as a, the generosity of a landowner. They looked at it as injustice, but it wasn't. They weren't being cheated. Hmm. So it's a problem of envy. You know, if we think about the sin of envy, it's when we get upset about another person's good fortune. Right. That's the sin of envy. It's a capital sin. And if you read the Book of Wisdom, they say that goes back to the devil himself, hmm. the sin of envy. So this is a really important uh, moral message for all of us. At the time, you can think about perhaps, and I think scripture scholars speak of how the Gentiles were kind of like the, the ones who came at the last hour. In other words, the Jews who were always faithful to the law, et cetera, or those who were faithful to the law, and later the Gentiles were accepted into the church, mm -hmm. and some were resentful of that. I wonder if that's part of the message for the ones who originally read this parable in Matthew's gospel, because that was a Jewish community that that Matthew wrote to, you know, that might have been the original context. But I think in our own time, we can think of that too. Sometimes people maybe who only convert late in their life, right? or maybe who come back to the practice of the faith, you know, after many years of not being faithful. Or it's kind of reminds me also of the parable of the prodigal son, mm -hmm. you know, because what was the elder son? He was jealous. He was envious. He had been there, you know, and he saw this extravagant mercy and generosity of the father who, you know, had the fatted calf killed for his, the, the son who had, had abandoned him right. and, uh, you know, and had this big feast for him. But again, that's the generosity of God. And uh, we're called to rejoice at that. So it kind of seems like everybody gets the same reward that eventually comes to Christ. If you if you get into heaven, you get into heaven and it's eternal happiness and everybody gets the same thing, no matter how long you believe, no matter how long you are working on it. What I don't understand about it is thus the last will be first and the first will be last. I kind of understand the last will be first and the first will be first because everybody's first. Everybody's in heaven. It's great. What does it mean to be the first will be last? I think it's, well, those who are hired first are paid last. Okay. Okay. And those hired last are paid first. So I think that's kind of an obvious thing. But I think also this could point to the last judgment. And I think some scripture scholars will, will, will see this parable as kind of referring to the last judgment. But I think the basic thing is that all of us, or I should say, none of us deserve right. the grace and blessing of God. We have all have reason to 
be grateful that the Lord is generous. That requires a certain amount of humility. Mm-hmm. So when I think of the last, I think of the humble. Right. That's why they will be first, because they are the ones who recognize that they don't deserve God's grace and favor. And I guess in this case, the first were envious, and so then they become last. Exactly, exactly. I always get um, uncomfortable when I'm at parishes, and I know it's kind of maybe a silly comparison, but when they have a a reception afterwards and there's a line, Uh and they always put me in the first place, Bishop, go first. Yeah. Well, I'm always like, I'm going to pay for this. (laughs) 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 And sometimes I'll try not to be first, Yeah. you know, but... um, Sometimes they kind of make me go first, but uh-huh. but I know that that's not what it's referring to. But but though I, I say that to people, I'll say, "Listen, I don't want to be first. I said Jesus said the first shall be last." Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, another feast. If you're up for chatting about it a little bit, today is the feast of Saints Cornelius and Cyprian. I don't feel like we talk about them very often. I hear I bet, that name. I bet a lot of people wouldn't know much about them. But you know what? I love church history, so so I think this is an opportunity to maybe give a little church history lesson, if that's okay. Okay. I'm ready. Okay. Should we start with Cornelius or Cyprian? They were actually friends. Okay. So you wonder why they're together yeah. um, on the feast of September 16th. It's because basically they lived at the same time and, and they were friends. Now, what time of the history of the church was this. We're talking really about the third century. So this is pretty early. And uh, Cornelius was elected Pope in the year 251. And it was during a persecution. The emperor at the time was the emperor Decius. And Decius ruled from 249 to 251 AD. So he was persecuting Christians in the Roman Empire rather sporadically and different places. But then he, by the year 250, he ordered all the citizens to perform a religious sacrifice Hmm. in the presence of commissioners, representatives of his, or face death. So this was like an escalation of the persecution. Uh And many Christians refused, and they were martyred, including another pope, Pope Fabian, he was martyred in the year 250. But other Christians, you know, didn't have the courage and they offered these sacrifices in order to spare their own lives. So this is what was happening. And this was a big challenge for, for Pope Cornelius. He's living during this persecution. But then what happened is after the persecution ended, there was one side, there was a priest whose name was Novation. And Novation said that those who, who stopped practicing their faith during the persecution and you know, offered these pagan sacrifices, they couldn't come back to the church. They had lapsed. They can't come back to the sacraments. Even if they repented, he said no. So he was very rigorous. So this really created a schism. I mean, you had... Catholics who were on both sides of the issue. You had those who agreed with novation that idolatry was an unpardonable sin. And they said the church doesn't have the authority to forgive apostates. They had forsaken Christ. 
So what did Pope Cornelius do? He had a synod of bishops because by this point, the schism was such that Novation made himself the pope and anti-pope hmm. with his followers. So the church was split. Cornelius wanted to keep the unity of the church, so he brought a synod of bishops together to confirm him that he's the true pope. He's the true successor of St. Peter. But then they had to also talk about what do you do with these people who had denied the faith, who had offered pagan sacrifices. By the way, in Latin, they're called the lapsi, L-A-P-S-I. We would say in English, the lapsed, the lapsed, okay. those who had lapsed. Now, there were some who said, well, let them come back, but that's okay. Well, Cornelius kind of took a middle position, which is the right position, I believe. He said he against novation that they should be allowed back, but they need to do, do penance, an adequate penance for their sin. So he wasn't rigorous saying they you couldn't welcome them back, but he wasn't so lax that he said, well, just let them back in without any penance or a minor penance. No, they had to do a significant penance. So they were restored to communion, the lapsy, the lapsed, through penance, and there was a period of penance. Now, this was a big deal. This was a big uh, fight, but it was resolved. The Pope made a decision. And by the way, St. Cyprian, who was in Carthage in, in North Africa, was on the side of Cornelius on this, mm. uh, on this issue. Anyhow, eventually Cornelius, a couple years later, was exiled by another emperor, <laughs> named Gallus, and he died, Pope Cornelius died in exile because in the hardships that he had in exile. So he's venerated as a martyr because that's, that's how he died. That's pretty much uh, the, the life of Cornelius. He's been venerated ever since. His body was found in the catacombs. We commemorate him on this day, on September 16th. His name means battle horn. He's represented in icons by a pope holding some form of a cow's horn or a cow nearby sometimes. Some of his relics are in Germany. They were brought there in the Middle Ages where there was significant devotion to Pope St. Cornelius. I feel like these names didn't hang in there very well. We don't have very many Cyprians and Cornelius's no. in, in elementary school these days. No, you know what? And when you mention that, I don't know that I've ever had a young person who's taken the name Cyprian or Cornelius for their confirmation. Well, maybe this show is going to spur on some inspiration. Well, why don't we name something in the diocese for St. Cornelius and St. Cyprian? Okay, do you have anything that's unnamed right now that needs named? Maybe I find a room somewhere or something. Okay. <laughs> I know. Is there a name for this studio? No. Seven, but, seventh floor studio? Yeah, but I don't know how I would tie that in. The <laughs> something to do okay. with the lapsed. Let me think. Okay. Maybe the evangelization office or okay. something. That might be good because we want to bring back lapsed Catholics. Okay. Is there an official naming <laughs> ceremony that goes along with this? <laughs> no, we'll just put up a sign. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Uh, let's move to, to uh, Cyprian, who was a bishop, Bishop of Carthage, a very important city in North Africa. He was an important saint, actually. He was, uh, I'll give you a little bit, he was born into a pagan family, very wealthy family, as a matter of fact. He um, 
was excellent in Latin rhetoric. Kind of reminds me of Augustine. Remember, we talked right. about how he was a teacher of rhetoric. So was Cyprian. He, and he was a very good orator. So he wasn't baptized till he was 35 years old. And so he's baptized around the year 245. Because he had this wealth, he, well, after he was baptized, he gave a portion of it to the poor people of Carthage. It's very interesting to read about his conversion. He, not long after he was baptized, this was common back then, as you know, he was ordained a deacon, then ordained a priest, and then elected, because they, the people elected their bishops back then, he was elected Bishop of Carthage. And the poor people were really happy about that because of how good he was to the poor. But some people didn't like the fact that this new, pretty new Christian was elected bishop. Again, we have this outbreak of the persecution under the emperor Decius. So that was right after he was ordained a priest. After uh, Cyprian was ordained a priest, you have this persecution that Pope Cornelius was suffering in Rome, but it was in the whole Roman Empire, including North Africa, including Carthage, where Cyprian lived. And so you have this ordering of these pagan sacrifices and all that. Now, what did Cyprian do? He went into hiding. Now, some of the clergy saw, well, he's a coward. He went into hiding rather than, you know, be martyred. Uh -huh. But he defended himself. He didn't flee, you know, for that reason. He, he fl fled because he knew that the people needed a shepherd during the persecution. And he didn't want to, and he wanted to, he thought God was calling him to continue to lead them. So he went into hiding. The persecution was very severe in Carthage. We have all kinds of evidence of documents about how severe that persecution was. And many fell away, the lapsi. So the same thing Pope Cornelius was dealing about. These who, who signed these statements say that they sacrificed to the Roman gods. They didn't want to have their property confiscated. They didn't want to be martyred. Some just signed these certifying they had done it, but they were lying. Hmm. Those were called labelli, these, these documents certifying that they had sacrificed. Now, in some cases, they actually sacrificed. Uh, sometimes they were being tortured, and that's why they, they gave in. But anyhow, even providing these statements, these signed statements, these labelli, you know, Cyprian said that was cowardly, that was wrong to do. He demanded that they undergo public penance before being readmitted to the church. So it was the same thing that Cornelius was saying. You mm -hmm. have to do public penance. There were some in, in uh, Carthage who were lax, and they were saying, no, just let them back. You know, no public penance or little penance. And then there were those who were rigorous, like Novation, who said they shouldn't be allowed back at all. So anyhow, Cyprian was the middle of that, just like Cornelius was. There was a bishop who opposed Cyprian, uh, and there was a schism in Carthage as well as in Rome. So very, very similar. And you had this polarization between the laxists and the rigorists. But Cyprian persevered with this moderate position, and basically his opponents were worn down and he succeeded just like, like St. Cornelius succeeded in Rome. He still had a lot of popular support, especially among the poor. They went underwent at that time also a plague and a famine, and he was known for his charitable zeal during the plague and the famine, his personal example of charity among the poor. 
He uh, defended Christianity against attacks from pagans. By the way, the, some of the pagans were claiming that the Christians were the cause of the public calamities that were taking place, the, the plague and the famine. By the end of the year 256, there was another persecution of Christians under a new emperor, Emperor Valerian. The pope, by that time, Cornelius had died in exile. The next pope, Sixtus II, was executed. Hmm. He was a martyr. Cyprian, again, is facing this, and he was brought before the, the Roman proconsul down in Carthage, and he refused to sacrifice to the pagan gods and firmly professed his faith in Jesus. He was banished, but he saw what his fate was going to be. And eventually, he was uh, imprisoned and then martyred, uh, executed with the sword. So, and that was, um, I forget what year, I want to say the year 258, maybe. They, they think he was probably beheaded by the sword, but we know he was killed by the sword. Hmm. His writings mostly are related to his pastoral ministry, some very important writings for early Christian literature. He wrote a very famous treatise when he was in exile called On the Unity of the Catholic Church. I'd say that's probably you know, a classic text for a patristic text on the church's unity. And that's, you've probably heard the, uh, it was really important because there were these divisions, you know? Uh, sounds like today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he basically said the unity is grounded in the authority of the bishop. Mm-hmm. And the unity among the bishops is guaranteed by unity with the Pope, uh-huh. the primacy of, of Rome. But he was the one who famously wrote, and I love this, you cannot have God for your father if you do not have the church for your mother. Hmm. Did you hear that before? I don't think I, I have. I think it's in the catechism. I like that. Yeah, you cannot have God for your father if you do not have the church for your mother. He wrote, God is one and Christ is one and his church is one. One is the faith and one is the people cemented together by harmony into the strong unity of a body. If we are the heirs of Christ, let us abide in the peace of Christ. If we are the sons of God, let us be lovers of peace. So his writings, there were other works that he wrote, one on the lapsed, on the fallen that we've talked about. He did also an important work on, on the Our Father. It's beautiful, a treatise on the Lord's Prayer. Huh. His feast was celebrated pretty quickly. Even when you look at the writings of St. Augustine, we have a homily from Augustine that he preached on the feast day of St. Cyprian. So already his uh, you know, veneration of Cyprian was pretty widespread throughout Africa by the fourth century, so you know, the next century. So anyhow, that's St. That's Cyprian. All right. Well, now I know a lot more about those two saints, and maybe uh, we'll have a... A room named after one of them, or uh, maybe your confirmation. next child. Sure, Cornelius. <laughs> sure, there you go. You know, uh, yeah. Talk to your wife. Maybe, so. maybe we just call him Neil for short. Yeah, you could. Because okay. actually, in my family, because Corny doesn't sound very good. We have a I have a Cornelius in my uh-huh. ancestry. Okay, on the Irish side, and I have a cousin, a distant cousin, who was a religious sister. She actually became the Reverend Mother, the Superior of the Benedictines huh. in in New Jersey, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and her name was Sister Cornelia. 
Really? Yep. Sister Cornelia. All right. And I, Mother Cornelia. And I remember her up until, I, I'm trying to remember if she was still alive when I was ordained a priest. But, but I remember as a child and a teenager, she was a very wonderful woman. And uh, so we have a connection in my family to that name, Cornelius, not to Cyprian. Yeah. Okay. Well, just a reminder, if you've missed any past episodes or want to share them with somebody, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can also ask your question there or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we'll see how much time we have. We have a lot of questions about intrinsic evils, giving up meat on Fridays, priests in jeans, confession, and the origin of Satan. That's coming up here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. When you're worried about your health, you go see a doctor. Worried about finances? Talk to the helpful folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our savings? Notre Dame FCU. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with Bishop. I'll ask the questions that you've submitted. One of our listeners wrote, On a previous episode about voting, you said we shouldn't vote for candidates who support intrinsically evil acts like abortion and racism. What are examples of other intrinsically evil acts? Well, first of all, I want to be clear about not voting for candidates who support intrinsically evil acts. It's the bishops teach we may not vote for them if the reason for voting for them would be because of their support of an intrinsically evil act. Right. So that's important distinction there. But of course, abortion is intrinsically evil. Euthanasia is also. They are, as we bishops have said, they are preeminent threats to human life and dignity. They attacked life itself, the most fundamental human good. Mm-hmm. We also, there are other intrinsic evils like human cloning destructive research on human embryos is intrinsically evil. That means we always have to oppose them. There's other attacks on innocent human life and and, uh, violations of human dignity that are intrinsically evil, like racism, Mm -hmm. genocide, torture. You know, we talked about just war in our last episode, targeting non-combatants in acts of war, Mm -hmm. terrorist acts. These are all things that are never justified. So they are intrinsically evil. They undercut the very dignity of the human person. So anyhow, I hope that answers the question. Okay. Someone said, thank you for taking time to do this show. I learned so much from it and appreciate being able to hear from my bishop. My question is about giving up meat on Fridays. My understanding is that although the practice isn't as common, we are still supposed to give up meat on Fridays or do another act of sacrifice or fasting in its place. I also understand that you need not do this on major feast days like the Friday in the Easter octave. What other feast days would allow the suspension of a Friday fast? It seems like there's a saint's feast day every day. Thanks for allowing us to ask you questions like this. Oh, that's a really good question. Well, first of all, according to the uh, Code of Canon Law, abstinence from eating meat or some other food is to be observed on every Friday of the year. Okay. According to the prescripts of the Conference of Bishops. So in the United States, so the Conference of Bishops can determine more precisely how we observe 
norms about fasting and abstinence and perhaps even allowing substituting other forms of penance or like acts of charity or acts of piety in place of abstinence or fasting. So basically what the U.S. bishops have determined, and this is goes back, I think, to the 1960s. I think it was when I was still in grade school. Determined that every Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, they were the only two days of the year required fast and abstinence, okay. fasting and abstinence. For other Fridays of Lent, there needed to be abstinence from meat. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but on other Fridays of the year, they lifted that obligation of abstaining from meat, but yet said it's still recommended, but not required. Okay. But you can do other things as far as penance on a Friday. You could continue to abstain from meat, like my family did. I mean, uh-huh. we always had fish on Friday, even after the lifting of the obligation. And I know families here in our diocese that still just have fish or don't have meat on Fridays. But if you're not, if you're going to eat meat on Fridays, you still should do some act of penance right. on a Friday. It could be special prayers, or you could just eat less food or do something, you know, maybe some almsgiving. But abstinence from meat is obligatory on all the Fridays of Lent. Okay. okay. So the question about fasting or abstinence on a feast day. You know, if you look at canon law, when it talks about abstinence and fasting to be observed every Friday of the year, depending on what the Episcopal Conference says, it says, unless a Friday occurs on a day listed as a solemnity. Okay. So only solemnities. So the the, the question said, like any feast days of saints, no. Right. You still have to do some act of penance on like, let's say, the memorial of Saint Cyprian, Saints Cornelius and Cyprian uh-huh. today. Well, today's not a Friday. Well, whatever Friday yeah. is, it has a saint. No, no, you still. It's only if it's a solemnity. That's the highest rank fe- ranking feast okay. in a liturg- in the liturgical year. So, on something like the solemnity of the Assumption of Mary into heaven, mm-hmm. solemnity of Christmas, the solemnity of all saints, we don't fast. We don't abstain from meat. Uh-huh. Those are solemn. The Annunciation. The solemnity of St. Joseph, March 19th, if that's on a Friday, you don't have to abstain from meat. So, again, keeping in mind solemnities only. And if you're not sure, if you have a liturgical calendar, you can look it up. I mean, it says if it's a solemnity. Uh I I could give you a list of solemnities. I'm thinking of some off the top of my head right now. The solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul. It's okay. June 29th. So there's only a few where there's saints where it's a solemnity. But there are a few solemnities of the Blessed Virgin Mary and several referring to Christ. Like I said, Christmas is a solemnity. Was the question correct about the Friday in the octave of Easter? That's a solemnity okay. because the whole octave of Easter, every day of the octave of Easter is a solemnity. Eight days right. from Easter Sunday until the second Sunday of Easter, until Divine Mercy Sunday. Okay, great. We got a long-distance question. It says, Would you allow a priest in your diocese to offer the Mass in blue jeans and white tennis shoes under his vestments, and if so, why? Also, if you would not, why do some bishops allow this? I have been told that priests in the South, where I currently live, 
have been attacked when wearing the collar, and this is why some do not. I was just hoping you could give some thought to this. I like to see a priest want to wear the collar and dress the way we are all supposed to for Mass, but I also don't want to feel like I'm judging him either. We have a new priest dressing like this, and this is not what I was used to when I was younger with Father Mark Gertner, who seemed to be a traditional priest that I like to look up to. I'm a freshman in high school and feel confused. Thank you, and God bless. Oh, very practical question. Thank you, and God bless you too. We really don't have allow or not allow. We don't really have any norms on um, what a priest wears underneath the alb or underneath his vestments when celebrating Mass. I mean, I would just give my opinion that I think it's appropriate to wear you know, black pants and, and black shoes. If a priest is, let's say, on vacation with his family or something, and he has, uh, you know, maybe wouldn't have that. But, but I think normally I would say black pants and black shoes. Of course, the alba is supposed to cover one's pants. So, I mean, you can usually see the bottom of them. Mm-hmm. I don't think shorts are appropriate. I wouldn't think at all. But, uh, but I think the normal thing should be black pants and black shoes. But you don't mandate. Someone, no, I don't mandate. I mean, and actually, you have to be also careful because some religious orders have, for example, they wear sandals. Mm-hmm. You know, some Franciscans will wear sandals. So it's not a universal thing even. I'm just talking about diocesan priests. Pope Benedict had the red shoes. Right. He had red shoes. That's true. The Pope usually had red yeah. shoes. So, yeah, we don't legislate on this. I just think you have to use common sense, what's appropriate, what's respectful. Mm-hmm. That's why, like, I don't think it would be respectful to have, like, gym shorts under one's uh, alb. As far as wearing a collar in public, is that something that you require or encourage priests to do? Yeah, we, we uh, encourage it. I mean, clerical garb. Um, they mentioned potential of being attacked while wearing the collar. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't really think so. I mean, I, maybe there's some areas of the world. I mean, after the sexual abuse crisis, you hear, hear, heard some of that with uh, priests being spat upon or whatever. Uh-huh. I'd say just take it, yeah. you know. But do you have to wear a clerical collar 24 hours a day? No. You don't. I mean, if I'm out riding a bike or something, I'll I'll have a t-shirt on and shorts if I'm riding a bike, uh-huh. you know. I mean, I normally wear clerical garb, but it's not required to be worn 24 hours. But I think it's good for us to be visible, even if we're not, quote, on duty. Sure. Um, because there's occasions, for example, where I've been on an airplane or in an airport, and because I have the Roman collar on, someone will will open up about their faith and maybe have questions, and it can be an opportunity to evangelize that may not have been there if I didn't have the clerical garb on, right. even though it wouldn't strictly be required. Sure. I think it's it's usually a good thing. But again, if I'm out hiking or riding a bike or something, I, I don't usually have my collar on. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we had a few other questions, but we are out of time for today. I wanted to mention, though, we're going to have a special episode next week. Uh, hopefully, you're remembering about this. We're going to do a live episode. Usually, we have our share-a-thon uh, because of the circumstances, COVID and everything. We're doing something a little bit differently. We're going to have special programming all day. We will have a special live episode of Truth and Charity next week at noon. And then it's all going to be leading up to a, an event, a live 
video streaming event that we're doing. It will also be on the radio called Tune In for All In. And so it will be airing some of our best local programming throughout the day with some of our favorite Catholic podcasts thrown in there as well. And then 7 p.m. next Wednesday night, there'll be a, a special live video event, games, appearances from favorite priests, Catholic leaders. So people can find out information about that at RedeemerRadio.com slash all in for details. And you can get registered for the event as well for free. So people check that out and we'll have a special episode of Truth and Charity. But uh, if people have questions for Bishop, go to the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Check out previous episodes of Truth in Charity or submit a question for a future show, including the live Truth in Charity episode next week, by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Or download the free Redeemer Radio app and select Ask Your Questions. For details on Tune In for All In, our virtual fall fundraiser, and to register for the free online event on September 23rd, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash All In. Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.